Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 69. I'm Jim Cornell and this is the weekly LaBiotech podcast. It's the end of October, so Halloween and BioEurope in Munich is just around the corner. This week on the podcast, we're talking about how to make cell and gene therapy more affordable and more accessible. Ori Biotech is helping the industry understand who and just how many people are actually receiving the approved cell and gene therapies. Although more than 20,000 patients have now received a commercial cell therapy since 2017, growth is not going to meet demand for years, by which point there will be a lot more approved cell therapies competing for limited manufacturing capacity. Jason Foster, Ori's CEO, can tell us more. First, if you can just give us a bit of background on the company. Sure. Yeah. No. So Ori, I was lucky enough to join the company or meet the company founders in 2018 after I'd left a business that I had been with for 10 years. Ori was founded to try and solve the scalability challenge in cell therapy manufacturing. So the founders of the business, Farland and Chris, were professors. They met as professors at UCL. University College London, which has a very long history, as you might know, in regenerative medicine, biochemical engineering, et cetera. Uh, and they were very close to Bruce Levine's lab at UPenn. And you'll know Bruce is the one of the creators of Kimraya in the first cell therapy. Bruce came over to present some of his early stage clinical data for what became Kimraya. And I think it was, this is now 2015. This is kind of one of the seminal moments in the in the field where, you know, 10 out of 10 refractory patients, you know, responded this kind of incredible clinical result that the industry had been waiting for forever. And, you know, people kind of threw their hands in in the air and cheered. And, you know, Chris and Farland looked at each other and said, how are you going to make these things? And they sort of went off drawing on the back of a napkin, these giant facilities, 100,000 square feet, and could only really get 1,000 doses a year out of them. And I'm like, that doesn't really make any sense. That can't be right. Unfortunately, even, you know, what's now almost 10 years ago, they were more right than they knew at that point. But, you know, it went off to try and understand really how to make these things and make them accessible for patients. You know, Ori's mission as a company is to enable widespread patient access to life-saving cell and gene therapies. You know, the cold reality today is that we have cures for cancer uh, and rare diseases that patients can't get access to because they're too expensive. They're too hard to make. Um, we just can't supply the need uh, out there. And that, you know, is really an untenable outcome from my perspective. I know, you know, almost everyone that I talk to has had been touched by cancer in some way to themselves or a family member or a friend. You know, we all know 10 million people a year diagnosed with cancer, another 10 million people a year die of cancer. Um, And having cures for for some of these patients that just can't be accessed is just not okay. So, you know, that's really the kind of foundations of the company founded to try and solve this access problem, solve this manufacturing problem. For what is a new modality, as you know, you know, cell therapy or, you know, autologous cell therapy in particular, it's a whole new supply chain. It's a whole new modality. It's a whole new way of thinking for, for biopharma. It's totally different than making tablets or biologics. We have this circular supply chain where we have to get starting material from a patient and return that therapeutic back to that individual patient. You know, if we make it of my cells, it's not going to work for you and vice versa. And this is something that the industry just really hasn't had to grapple with before and we haven't really got our head around it completely you know and and today's reality is we just throw bigger buildings and more people at the problem and and try and fix it that way but it doesn't change the fundamental problem which is we don't have the tools we need you know the current strategies aren't 
uh, effective at really making these products, you know, in large quantities at, at a you know accessible price. And so that's really the the genesis of Ori is really solving that market access challenge and to build a platform that's bespoke for the needs of this particular industry rather than being repurposed and trying to jam the square peg into the round hole, which we've done for years and hasn't really worked that well. In terms of the issues surrounding cell and gene therapies, is it something where maybe, I don't say to abandon it, but are other options being looked into to try and either get around that or to change the mechanism rather than to try and keep it the way it is but make it cheaper um i would say you know kind of choice d all the above is probably the answer they're looking at kind of every potential opportunity so i think in cell and gene sometimes we think we're special like in cell and gene it's okay that we cost a lot because you know it's that's these are hard to make products but we're also looking at interventions that come from other areas you know adcs is a big area of, of research and work right now you know of course immunotherapies uh, have had a lot of clinical benefit for patients so you know we need to be cost effective in the round to treat the patient um, not the cell and gene intervention can be 10x what the other interventions are um, that doesn't really work that way so I think you're right that we we need to kind of reframe our thought process to say we need to make products that are affordable and accessible, not just approvable, you know, by the regulator. And that includes products that are more easily manufactured, you know, manufacturing platforms like Ori's intend to try and make these more accessible in that way. You know, allogeneic approaches where we only have, you know, half the supply chain, We, we source donor cells, we make a cell therapy product. And we make it so that it could be effective for anyone more generically is a an approach that people are exploring. There's lots of challenges with it, but it's an approach. Uh, and then there's certainly lots of other approaches to treat similar diseases. You know, we have very effective medications like, you know, just to use one example, Carvicti and multiple myeloma, which is a CAR-T product. We've never seen efficacy ever in the industry like we see with that product as an example. You, you know, 90 plus percent of patients have a complete response. I mean, these are just incredible numbers. So we know it's clinically effective. So we don't need to improve the the efficacy or the safety. We really need to improve the manufacturability, the, the access, the kind of distribution of the products. So trying to solve for all those things at once is a little bit difficult. So I think, you know, there are other products that will try and provide clinical benefit for multiple myeloma patients, as an example. But I think ultimately we're very focused on bringing this incredibly clinically effective modality to patients at scale and that seems to me the most direct direct path to have a big impact on patients is a part of that also trying to get this to be something that's off the shelf it certainly could be i do a podcast as well the ori spotlight and i had bruce levine on the podcast and i asked him this question there's kind of this often this allo versus auto debate so like you know one versus the other Bruce's view and, and the view of a lot of the thought leaders in this space is that actually, you know, we've proven the clinical case for autologous. We know that there is a challenge with manufacturing and cost of goods. We haven't yet proven the clinical case for allogeneic. It's more of a, a concept. We know that there's durability and potency and all kinds of challenges there. And we're not even sure that it's going to be cheaper. We sort of assume it will be. We don't even know yet for sure. Uh, you know, his view is that both of these modalities will evolve kind of in parallel. And you might see some cell types or some indications where an allogeneic approach works. And you might see others where 
autologous, you know, remains the leader. Um, I think ultimately treating patients with their own immune cells will always be more straightforward and more clinically, you know, effective probably than uh, with donor cells or, you know, non-native cells. But, you know, again, that's not the only consideration. It's, you know, how affordable are these products? How widely accessible are they? My position would be that those two modalities will evolve in parallel and we'll see some evolution to where they're targeted at very specific uses and use cases that make the most sense for that particular modality. Yeah, totally makes sense. What is it that you're developing to address some of these issues? So Ori's is a manufacturing platform. We're an enabling technology company. We're not a therapeutics developer. So we would partner with those companies that are making, let's say, CAR-T products, just as an example, and they could develop their products on the platform. Uh, and then also the kind of real secret sauce, if you will, the special magic we're trying to pull off here is to build a platform that's flexible enough at the early phases so you can do research on it. You can sort of discover what process is going to work to transform that immune cell into a therapeutic. Today, we do that in lab tools. You know, we have flasks and bags and micropipettes and all the tools that you'd expect to see in a lab. But then you have to fundamentally change the process, not once, but several times, and you're on your path to commercialization, which leads to a lot of challenges and costs and delays and and often to the product failing to reach the market. In the Ori world, you know, if we build a platform that's flexible enough for them to do research on and they can get it to work on the platform, then we know that it will seamlessly scale with them into the clinic and ultimately to commercial scale manufacturing. So it takes a lot of that tech transfer process comparability risk off the table. We know we can develop it with that platform. We just do more of it in parallel, essentially. So it's both flexibility and scalability. Um, so ours is a hardware platform. It's actually a physical instrument. It's consumables that are utilized during the process. Uh, and then that's underpinned by a cloud native data platform. So it allows us to really capture data from in the system, kind of where the cells are growing and understand that process at a fundamental level where we can't really today. You know, you'll hear it described sort of as as magic or as a black box. Like what happens in the manufacturing process is kind of invisible to everyone. No one's really sure, you know, because biology isn't engineering. It's it's much more nuanced. So we're not really sure why the cells do what they do. And sometimes we see high failure rates or high variability in these processes because we're putting human cells in them. And it's very hard for us to explain. You know, if the regulator asks us, like, why why did that outcome occur? Oftentimes we say, well, we're not sure. Ultimately, that answer is not going to be good enough for long. So we're really trying to make a platform that's reliable, repeatable, that can make products at a high throughput, so tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of doses a year, uh, and also at a dramatically lower cost, you know, to make them much more accessible for patients. So that's really what Ori's trying to do. What is it doing exactly in order to improve things? Is it just speeding up the process or is it improving the rate at which you can create cells? It's a little bit of both those things. At the kind of base level, we're trying to automate currently manual processes. So in today, you'll have a lot of human operators moving around a process where they're moving cells from one unit operation to the next. Usually they'll tube weld into a gas permeable bag, then they'll take that bag downstream, they'll tube weld it into another piece of equipment. That piece of equipment will do its job and they'll tube weld again to get the process, the product out of that step. So there's a lot of highly manual steps that are constrained by volume, by 
the limitations of that particular piece of equipment. So it's just it's a highly manual operation. You know, I've seen a video of a Novartis operator in their Camaraya process shaking a bag of cells back and forth like this. Um, it kind of gives you a sense of the level of manual kind of intervention that's required today. So we try and take a lot of those manual steps out. And a lot and some of that is to due to the flexibility of the system. So the bioreactor, the cell culture vessel is flexible in itself. So it allows us to do different unit of operations, do them at low volume, do them at high volume, do a static culture, do an active culture, allows us to add things when we want, take things out when we want. So this kind of gives you an indication of the flexibility of the system. And the other key component is, is automating fluid handling. A lot of this is a fluid handling problem. You know, we're putting cells into a, a vessel, usually then we're adding media or we're adding cytokines or we're taking a sample or we're adding virus or, you know, it's a lot of moving fluids back and forth uh, as part of this process. So if you can automate that fluid handling piece, you actually take a lot of those manual interventions out. Um, so a lot of the need for human operators and people. So we think in the first iteration of the Ori platform, which will launch next year, we'll drop the labor requirement by up to 70%. And these are very highly skilled, very hard to find operators today. So we'll drop the labor requirement by 70%, allowing those people to go do other high value tasks, not tube welding, which isn't a particularly high value task. But also for the remaining 30%, we can de-skill that labor to a kind of technician level versus maybe, you know, PhD immunologist level. So it really expands the labor pool to be able to deliver these products for patients at scale. Um, and we think by doing that, along with some other savings in the system and the way we use reagents and virus and other other components, we'll be able to drop cost of goods by around 50%, so 5-0% in the first iteration that will launch next year. We would argue that's a great step forward. I think, you know, a product that costs today 150 grand to make roughly, if you're talking about one of the first generation CAR-T products, that then costs 75 grand to make. That's a significant step forward. However, I think you and I can both realize that a product that costs $75,000 to make is still too expensive to be widely accessible at first line. So everything we've developed has been built with kind of first layer automation contained within, but then second layer automation in mind so full automation where actually you take all of the human operators out or you know 99% of it and robotics fill the gap so the ability to do that we think will drop cost of goods by maybe 80 or 90% totally and then you're talking about products that would be very cost effective certainly at second line if you're comparing it to a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant but maybe even at first line when you go through multiple rounds of chemotherapy hospital stays testing you know, all the things that are entailed with cancer treatment, just to use that as an example, you know, we can see that curative, let's just say CAR-T therapy could be cost effective at first line. First, definitely clinically. I think clinically effective, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? We're using a, patient, a healthier patient's cells to make the therapeutic. It's likely that you're going to get as good or better clinical effect. But there's really this cost effectiveness issue. And, you know, there's a massive amount of cost associated with hospitalization. Right now, you're seeing more and more clinical trials actually doing outpatient treatment, particularly in the U.S., for CAR-T and for others. So we're sort of, we're learning our way. We're finding our way through about how to have less intervention, less side effects, you know, healthier patients that are drawing less out of the healthcare system. So I think the combination of those efforts hopefully will bring these products to first line. That would be our hope. You mentioned how automation can bring the price down. Are you able to speed up the process to bring the price down and also shrink the footprint, the actual footprint to potentially bring price down as well? 
Yeah, great questions. Um, absolutely. So I think you know the, the, these processes are they're very bespoke. Every process has a lot of nuance. You might have heard the phrase, you know, the process is the product. This is a lot of where the IP is, is where you know how we develop these processes. Today's standard process is about let's say somewhere between seven to ten days. You'll get kind of most cell therapy products falling within that range. Uh, we think we can probably shave 30% off of a process, so maybe three to two or three days off of a process in the current iteration and the kind of current constraints. And that would definitely have significant savings from a cost of goods and labor perspective, but also obviously returning the product back to a patient several days earlier. These are very sick people. You know, these are people that have been through, you know, many rounds of treatment unsuccessfully. So time is of the essence. So I think all of that is a could be a potentially a big benefit. Uh, and the other one that you highlighted is, is very significant in that today we do these manufacturing processes in, in massive aircraft hangar size buildings, you know, GMP facilities that, you know, 100, 150,000 square feet, they cost $150 million to build. These are significant investments. Uh, with the technology that we've developed, we're able to shrink the footprint of manufacturing dramatically. So potentially using 95% less, so only 5% of the space to deliver the same number of doses a year. Those manual processes we described earlier are quite space intensive. You know, you have a lot of people moving around in a clean room. You can't do but so many doses in that same space. So you need more and more space, you you know, scale out, you've heard rather than scale up. So scaling out can be very expensive because that's that square footage is very expensive. So our hope is that we will dramatically reduce the footprint and the requirement for GMP clean room space uh, with the platform as well. Is it something that obviously the more people with cancer are in bigger centers, so you know London, New York, Paris, where real estate is at its most expensive, do you envisage being able to say put something in rural Wyoming or in Scotland where it's cheaper to have that footprint to start with that would also save a lot of money but then you're into transportation costs yeah no, this is a really kind of nuanced debate that's happening in the industry right now so as you know most of the industry has grown up on what we call centralized manufacturing right you have big facility big plant somewhere stamping out tablets or making biologics and then we take those and we ship them out to the supply chain that's today's biopharma you know, manufacturing model. And that's the model we've applied to cell therapy because that's what we know. Um, and that model doesn't make a huge amount of sense for personalized medicines. If you're making a generic product that can serve any patient, it makes a lot of sense. You get economies of scale. But with this, it's sort of every every dose is unique. Every patient dose is different for that patient. And it makes those economies of scale much, much harder to gain. So what you've described, the, th- the theory of distributed manufacturing, can we take manufacturing out in the community down, you know, closer to the patient somewhere, is a, an idea that's gained a lot of traction in the industry. I think we can all see the benefits of time savings, you know, the logistics of shipping cells halfway across the world and all the complexity and, and cost of that isn't very appealing uh, and isn't scalable. So, you know, this is a potential solution. It has its own challenges, certainly, because, you know, how do we batch release products that are manufactured in lots of different places is often a, how do we ensure that there's a quality system in place that makes sure that the patient is safe and the product's efficacious. I think those challenges are overcomable with the advent of technologies like Ori's and, you know, some of our partners, you know, we're, we're partnering with software providers like a Benchling, as an example, or a Traxcell, where 
so long as the information and data quality is there, you could potentially batch release from one location products that are made in many locations. So if you have a digital batch record, essentially all that a quality person, a QA or QC person at the end, you know, qualified person in Europe would be doing, we're looking at the batch record. Today it's on paper, you know, it's a thousand pages and they're leafing through it and they're saying, okay, there's a deviation. Yep, I think that's okay. Going through, going through, and eventually they sign it and there's like two or three people that have to review that documentation. So that's all done by hand, effectively, all done on paper and all done at the site of manufacture. That's today's norm. So you need enough quality people at that site physically to be able to do that work. You can imagine a scenario where actually, if this is a digital record, that you have a centralized repository, a centralized place where you're doing batch release, all of the data that that person needs to, to evaluate the batch and the quality is delivered to them digitally. And they can go through, and they can evaluate it, and then they can release it, even if they're not there specifically on site. And so you get economies of scale of those individuals who are very hard to find. And then eventually, potentially, you can do things like batch release by exception or continuous validation processes, which would the system would essentially say, you know, if it stays within this set of parameters, it's probably good to go. And you just need someone to say yes. So those kinds of advancements are coming and Ori's platform should help us take a large step in that direction. We as a company are site of manufacture agnostic. So if you're a pharma company, you've got a facility, you want to manufacture there, we can help increase the throughput, lower the costs in that facility that exists today. Or if you want to build a distributed manufacturing network, which some of our partners are thinking about, then we can do that as well. And I think our technology is uniquely sort of qualified to try and deliver that kind of network, you know, distributed network approach for the hopefully the near term future. I would imagine that data collection and data analysis is becoming more and more important. Uh, Could you tell me about the patient tracker that you've introduced? Yeah, absolutely. So. This was really the genesis of me asking a dumb question, which is usually what happens. You know, I sort of said, well, how many patients have been treated with the approved six CAR-T products? That was the question, uh, which are, as you know, you know, yes, Carta and Camraya have been around the longest for five plus years now. You've got Abecma and Carvicti in the multiple myeloma space, and then you've got Tocardis and Brianzi. So there's six products that are approved that are CAR-T products. Mostly all of those are approved in the U.S., and I just asked an innocent question to say, how many how many patients have been treated historically with these products? And everyone sort of looked at me like, we don't know. And I said, well, can you try and find out? We went out and did a bunch of research and no one could find the answer. And I'm like, that's odd. You know, <laughs> you'd think this would be something that someone somewhere was tracking. Uh, but I come to find that that's not the case. It hasn't been a number that's been tracked. It's sort of been estimated in lots of articles saying, oh, I think it's around 20,000. You know, some of the thought leaders sort of have their, their finger on the pulse, but no one really knows. So we have taken the public kind of disclosures, uh, quarterly disclosures from all of the companies that market those products are publicly listed. Um, so they have you know, disclosed information quarterly on sales uh, and very creatively, we've taken total sales divided by kind of gross price to get a, a rough metric of how many patients have been treated. Now it's specifically wrong, but probably directionally correct as we say, you know, we're looking really looking at trends, like how many more patients are get, getting treated year over year. So there's there's good news and bad news with that. The, the bad news is, you know, throughout our history for the last six years of having available CAR-T products, we've only treated around 20,000 patients. And that represents about 3% of the patient population that could have benefited from those therapies. So that's a relatively low number. And as I've already <laughs> articulated, Ori has an ambition to try and help that. 
Uh, but the good news is that we are on track this year to double the number of patients that we treated last year. So last year in total, we treated about a little bit less than 7,000. So it's called 6,700 or so, maybe not double, up by 50%. So this year we're on track to treat between eight and 9,000. So it's a healthy increase. Uh, but again, it leaves uh, a large gap in the patients that could have benefited but weren't able to get treatment. And unfortunately, in this world, because these are the last line therapies, the patients who don't get this option often have the worst outcome. There is really no other options available to them. So that's why kind of this, you know, enabling widespread access is such an important uh, goal for the company. Clearly, we're at a point where more people are getting cancer. So demand is increasing. If you're able to get costs down and get more people treatments, at what point do you think that we will start to see those that imbalance improve? If I were to dust off my crystal ball um, and try and future gaze, my hope is that within the next five years, you'll see the products that exist today much more widely available. So many more products available and you know the competition will kind of introduce some pricing pressure so that instead of costing half a million dollars or you know some of these gene therapies cost almost three or four million dollars each for each patient so some of those prices might come down and then you might get earlier access and so you get this overall more patients get treated and also you know i think we expect to see many more products approved you know we're, we're looking towards the end of this year vertex and crispr could have a very interesting product uh, approved the first of its kind. I think it's Iovance is going to have a till product. So it's a solid tumor product that's targeted towards uh, melanoma. So you're seeing some, you know, the ones that exist today are mostly hematological tumors. So blood cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma, those are the approved products. Solid tumors that thus far have been elusive. You know, these are much harder to penetrate and get into the tumor. We're starting to see some new products come out, you know, towards the end of this year and next year. So in the next five years, we should have, I would venture to say, tens of more products available. Uh, and hopefully we'll have the technology infrastructure that supports the delivery of those products to a much larger number of patients. That would be my hope. And, and certainly within the 10 year time frame, you know, we could be potentially curing cancer in a very large number of patients if, uh, if things go well. It's good news, yeah. Um, I hope so, yeah. How is your company able to, obviously you've got to make money as well, but how do you sort of assist in that, facilitating that process? Yeah, so we, we have five partners we're currently working with that have the platform kind of on site or they're working with it uh, with us. And really it starts with a collaboration of trying to understand their manufacturing process, looking at what they currently have, and then translating that over onto the platform. That's the kind of first stage. And then we do some feasibility work because ultimately Ori is a biology first company. We are focused on biology. We've been working on biology very diligently for the last four years because that's where the industry starts. That's where our partners start. When they think about this, this challenge, they think about the biology first. Ultimately, we have to start there, but we also need to keep that end game in mind. We can't only focus on biology and lose the, the, the kind of piece around how do we get this to lots of patients? You know, we need to make sure whatever process we develop is scalable. So we start with the biology, we replicate their process. We've had very, very good results with some of our initial partners being able to very quickly replicate or most often surpass the results they have with their existing process. So today they'll be using those manual lab tools we were talking about. 
and they will have been working on those for years, you know, two, three, four, five years. They've been perfecting that process. And within, for the first couple of partners we've worked with, within a month, we are on par or better than that process. So that's a great showcase of how we're able to adapt the technology to the needs of the process versus trying to shoehorn the process into the limitations of the technology. So once we get that right, then the question is, how do we then prove the scalability? So it's, you know, can we repeatedly and reliably put cells through that platform and get the same result out the other side? And that's really where we're going to be over the next 12, you know, 15 months. Our hope is that we'll be in clinical trials with a few partners. So towards the back half of next year, if not early 25, where we'll begin to see first clinical use. So patients will be treated with the therapeutic that comes off of the ORI platform, which will be a day to celebrate for us, for sure. You know, there's been for some five or even longer, seven years of hard work to try and get to that point. So that's how we would make an impact, working closely with therapy developers, CDMOs, academic researchers to develop these products and then bring them into the clinic as quickly as we can and then get them to patients, get them approved and get them to commercial scale. That's really our role as a partner to the industry is to enable that to happen as quickly and as safely as possible. And I assume that you're constantly or that your own platform is constantly evolving. It is. I mean, we've been really kind of R&D focused for the last four years. We've trialed it with, I think, nine partners now, five or six therapy developers, a couple of CDMOs. MD Anderson is a partner, so we're working with MD Anderson to make sure we've got the right tools, that it's the right technology and it's not overly restrictive or that it's fit for purpose. We're highly confident that it meets the need that our partners have. So that process is underway, has been going on, is coming to a completion in the next, let's say, six to nine months. We will lock the design, we'll move, we'll transfer into manufacturing, uh, and then we'll look to make it commercially available at the end of next year so people can start to purchase the platform and develop their own products on it, which will be an exciting time for us. So yeah, we're moving from an R&D focus really to a commercial launch focus and getting the product out there in the hands of the industry that needs it to make these incredible products. So I assume that your company will change a lot over the next 12 to 18 months then? <laughs> it will. It will. We're scaling up, you know, the, the staff. We've got, I think, 10 people in the U.S. now. We'll kind of build that team up because a lot of the customers that we'll be working with are U.S.-based. So we'll have to kind of make the leap across the pond. And, you know, a lot of our team that we're hiring, they're experts in product development. So they will have worked at therapy developers developing these therapies. They're biologists, they're technical operations people, they're MSAT people. They really understand this process fundamentally so that they can partner with our customers to make sure that their processes go as quickly and as easily as possible through that journey. So hiring those people, deploying them in the right places, uh, it's no easy puzzle to unlock. But I think our approach in that way is different from most technology companies. We are providing not only the technology, but also the knowledge and the know-how and the, and the value-added service on top of it. Uh, in addition to that, we're partnering with CDMO partners like the Cell Therapy Manufacturing Center down in Houston, like potentially even the Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult here in the UK, to leverage their expertise alongside the platform. So they become essentially centers of excellence who really understand the technology and then they bring their own expertise to the challenges that our shared partners have as therapy developers. So we don't want to be a CDMO. We don't want to be a service provider. We don't think that makes sense for us. Uh, we want to partner with those experts, those CDMOs that already have the capability 
and allow them to do their job that much better, that much quicker, that much more efficiently to develop these products, get them into clinical trials and get them to patients. We're on the hunt. We're, we are conquering cancer one one disease indication at a time. Pretty soon it's it's uh, melanoma. You know, we know we have partners that are looking at lung cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer. A lot of these diseases are intractable. They don't really have good treatments today. And you can sort of see the the near-term vision five years from now, seven years from now, 10 years from now, we have potentially curative interventions for those diseases. So certainly a lot of optimism coming from us at this point. When you talk about curing cancer, I think that certainly it's improved, but still the most or the best way to prevent it is to catch it early, whereas that isn't always the case. So having solutions that can treat people later on is important. Well, and also kind of the full spectrum, I think, you know, having, you know, these are very clinically effective interventions. We think about the way we do it today, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? So we, we wait until a patient is as sick as they could possibly be. We harvest their immune cells. We turn that immune, those immune cells into a therapeutic. And very frequently, more frequently than not, that therapeutic is clinically effective. But you can imagine if we would do that much, much earlier, how much more effective it could be and potentially lower side effects, you know, lower cost for the system if you were to intervene earlier. So I think it's really trying to understand, you know, where on the continuum of care this kind of intervention makes the most sense. And if we can make it much more affordable, we'll start to see it used much earlier line therapy. I mean, there's no clinical or safety reason why they should be restricted access, why they should be last line. It's more of a commercial cost reason that we just can't afford to make them widely available for everyone today. But hopefully that trade-off doesn't have to be made, you know, in the future. We can actually make the products affordably and they can be accessible to all the patients who, for whom they're clinically indicated. But Kite and others have proven, certainly at second line, that these therapies are more effective than the standard of care. And they're now starting to look at, you know, the first line chemo. Chemo is cheap in the whole scheme of things. And we know how detrimental it is to a patient. But from an intervention perspective, it's relatively cheap and relatively effective most of the time. So it remains first line. I met uh, a lady called Lucy Alerkler Jones, whose her son Opie was one of the first pediatric CAR T patients in the UK. So he was one year old, I think, when he was diagnosed and received CAR T therapy shortly after. And they've started something called the Opie Jones Foundation to support families who are who are going through CAR T. But Lucy told me that you know I didn't know this I I should have but didn't for particularly young patients chemo has potentially significant long-term detrimental side effects. At the time when you're sort of like, well, they might die if they don't have it, that's the only real option. But potentially chemotherapy can render children or, or patients sterile, you know, unable to have children in the future. And that's just one of the negative consequences of, of the current standard of care. And again, if that's all you got and the patient's going to die otherwise, that's what you do. But, you know, the way she, she terms it is CAR-T was much kinder, it was a much kinder therapy the side effects were much less, at least in her experience, and, and they had a good clinical result. So, you know, I think that's what we all hope is that we really grapple. We, we understand better how to deploy this modality to get that clinical benefit in a cost-effective way without all the side effects and other healthcare or hospitalization needs around it. But again, causes for optimism. I think we're, we're learning more and more about the modality. Um, we're still in the relatively early phases. It's one of those overnight successes that's taken 30 years. 
But as far as deploying this in patients and really understanding how patients react to this kind of therapy, the end isn't very big. We haven't been doing this very long. So we'll get better from here. And I think that's a positive for humanity as a whole. And not only for developed countries that can afford these products. I think there's 6 billion other people in the world who live in the develop, in developing countries that also should have access to these. So I know there's some great work going on in India. We have some investors from the Middle East who are interested in bringing CAR-T therapy there. So hopefully if we're going to do our job right, this should be accessible not only in the developed world, but all over the world. And that's a super exciting prospect. It's always good to talk about how more patients with terrible diseases can be better served, which is always the bottom line. Just a reminder to check out the latest news and articles at labiotech.eu. And I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening. And we hope you will join us next time for another Beyond Biotech. 